above the beautiful Buckhead District of Atlanta. This is your personal transgender scientist, Dana Bevan. This podcast concerns the fourth factor in transgender causation, that of early childhood learning and transgender recognition. In previous podcasts, I described how genetic gender predisposition is acquired and how Western culture collides with this predisposition to create transgender behavior. But in order for this collision to take place, a fourth factor is needed. In order to be transgender, one needs to know about Western gender and recognize which gender category best fits with their gender behavior predisposition. Like most other children, transgender children go through the learning process and recognition process, but unlike other children, their best fit with their gender predisposition is not the gender behavior category they were assigned at birth. This recognition and emergence as transgender usually occurs in childhood, although some only recognize that they are transgender later in their teens or adulthood. It's well documented that most all children mastered the fundamentals of the Western gender system by the ages of two or three. I've written about seeing my two-year-old granddaughter happily skipping down the sidewalk, dressed all in pink, including a pink tutu. She knew about gender expectations even then. Many of you already know this, but I'll point it out for those who don't, that there is no biological reason why pink should be associated with a feminine gender behavior category or blue with a masculine category. In fact, before World War I, if anything, the colors were reversed, with girls assigned to blue and boys assigned to pink. The rationale was that blue was a delicate color, more appropriate to delicate girls, and pink was a bold color, more appropriate to boisterous boys. The pink-blue color assignment is a totally arbitrary feature of the Western gender system. Before World War I, the reality was that both male and female children usually wore white dresses, which allowed for easy access to diapers and allowed clothing to be passed down to younger children regardless of sex. Yes, male children wore dresses, as well as female children, and they were only allowed to wear pants or only breeched at the age of eight or so. How do children learn about gender? Well, the opportunities to learn gender are all around them. First, their parents and families provide a constant stream of instruction as to what boys do, what girls do, so they'll grow up to be men and women, daddies and mommies. Second, Adults all around the the children are modeling appropriate gender categories in their presentation and behavior. Same and opposite gender brothers and sisters and playmates also provide models. Parents quickly call out ideal examples and likewise call out deviations from the rules with regard to the models. Third, books and media presentations of children and adults are generally consistent with the Western gender system. At this early age, children may not be able to read, but their parents read to them and narrate television and now even internet videos. Understand that children at ages two to three know a lot about gender, but they don't know much about sex. When adults say that children do not understand gender at an early age, they are just not paying attention to their children or they are confusing gender with sex. As children in Western culture learn about gender behavior categories, they come to recognize which category fits their genetic gender predisposition and which does not. Transgender children start to emerge at age four, and most emerge by the age of seven. 
researchers have constructed bar graphs of the number of emergences, and year seven is the highest. After that, transgender emergence tails off rapidly, but there are still some emerging in teen and adult years that finally get it. If no one tells them differently, they may start behaving in their congruent gender behavior category, which is not the culturally assigned one. If they are discouraged by parents from behaving in their congruent category, they may temporarily change their behavior. But being transgender is always there as far as we know. More about that in the next podcast. When I was almost five, I went up to my mother and told her that I was a girl and not a boy. She made no attempt to dispute that, but she did say that people would think that I was crazy. Even at that age, I knew what happened to crazy people. They would go to a hospital never to return. It had happened to my babysitter and her brother who lived across the street. I learned much later that they'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia. My mom said that because I was a boy that I had a duty to my family to get good grades in school, play sports like football, raise a family, and go into the military. Since coming to America, none of the Bevins had ever served in the U.S. military. This was mainly due not to their willingness, but to their age, sex, or because of physical impairment. She said that we, uh, our family owed a debt to those who did serve. And this was right after World War II. Since I am an only child, I actually will be the only Bevan in my line to ever have served. Not knowing the difference between sex and gender at my young age, I told her that I wanted to become a girl. And she said that this was not possible. But I was a precocious five-year-old, and she had taught me how to read. And I, I was reading, or at least looking at, the pictures in magazines that featured Christine Jorgensen, previously a male World War II soldier that had gone to Denmark for transsexual gender plastic surgery. In common parlance, she had had a sex change. I pointed to a picture of Christine, the Caitlyn Jenner of her day, and said, She changed? My mother withdrew her argument that said when I was an adult, I could decide whether to change or not. She essentially told me to go into the closet, which I did for over 40 years. Some people say that being transgender is a conscious lifestyle choice, but those people are obviously unaware of what we know about the science of human consciousness and choice. Research psychology has been studying choice for over 100 years. One of the first and simplest experiments that psychologists conducted demonstrated that choice is made by subconscious mechanisms. You can easily do the experiment yourself. Find two objects about the same size and shape, say a pencil or a pen, pick one up, put it down, and then pick up the other. Which one was heavier? What you will find is that the decision just comes to you without any conscious thought. Of course, in the laboratory, psychologists control for size and shape by using same size objects with different weights. Conscious is not required for choice. Most, if not all, of our brain mechanisms work at a subconscious level. What we call conscious awareness occurs well after subconscious systems have already made the choice. Experiments since the 1980s have shown that we can accurately predict choice behavior from brain activity measurements like EEG and fMRI. And we can do that well in advance of consciousness awareness. Well, why is this so? Well, the simple answer is that the human brain would have to be much larger and more complicated than it already is, as if it worked in having a conscious process coordinate everything. 
what worked for vertebrates during evolution was to develop subconscious mechanisms for various nervous system functions that were useful in survival. What we call conscious awareness just sits atop of those subconscious functions. Subconscious functions mostly go on without conscious control. There are a couple of examples. Take your breathing mechanisms. Normally you don't pay much attention to breathing and subconscious mechanisms just hold up, go on regulating breathing and to oxygenate your, oxygenate your blood. But you can take conscious control of these subconscious breathing mechanisms if you hold your breath or change the rhythm of your breathing. In the case of breathing, there is dual control between conscious awareness and subconscious processes. But many subconscious mechanisms are beyond conscious control. Let's take motion sickness, for example. It involves subconscious mechanisms in the brainstem that try to make sense of what the eye sees and what the inner ear senses as it goes through, as the body goes through movement. When those inputs are out of sync, you get nauseous and dizzy. Your conscious awareness cannot directly control them like it can control breathing, although you probably wish it could to make the bad effects go away. For some functions, we never see the result of subconscious mechanisms. There are numerous examples of brain and nervous system functions that fool our consciousness awareness. For example, we consciously experience a visual world in which objects are focused, in color, stable, and movement is continuous. The brain creates this visual world from the inputs it gets from the eye, which are mostly defocused, mostly monocolor, and snapshot form. Your eyes move about 10 times a second and essentially take little snapshots with the brain stitches together. During the movements, you are essentially blind. The visual world our conscious awareness sees is an illusion created by the brain. There are various types of choices that we make and recognition is one of the easier ones. Recognition does not require the heavy lifting or setting up of alternatives. As children learn about gender behavior categories, they just recognize which fits and is more natural, more congruent and less congruent. Remember that transgender people did not set up the gender behavior categories. They are a part of culture, which is arbitrary and not biological. Culture has done the heavy lifting of setting up alternatives, but they come with a price and that they may conflict with a person's genetic gender predisposition. Cisgender culture requires a force fit into a gender behavior category that may not be congruent with a person's biological gender behavior predisposition. This is because cisgender culture assigns gender behavior categories on the basis of sex assigned at birth. And we know that sex and gender predisposition have separate biologies. They do not have to agree. Binary culture requires a forced fit into one of only two categories, like having only two shoe sizes. Departures from cultural expectation of gender in Western culture are penalized by rejection and sometimes violence. Because of this forced fit, the limited number of categories and inflexibility of the Western gender system. Consciousness is a complex subject, and I plan to go into more detail on a subsequent podcast, but I know some of you will be worried that I'm suggesting that you are without free will. If you accept that subconscious processes recognize the best gender category fit, think about it this way. There's no requirement that free will has to be a conscious process. We often say that we behave in one way or another because of our intuition, 
or we fly by the seat of our pants, or we make choices from our gut feel. In fact, some of our most life decisions are, are made this way. These are all results of our subconscious processes. I should not leave out the genderqueer and gender fluid children and adults who are on the increase. In their case, they cannot find a gender behavior category that fits them. They borrow behaviors from both Western gender categories, either mixing them permanently or temporarily. Study of these folks is just starting. Next time, we'll start providing scientific evidence that applies to various transgender issues, starting with the current hot controversy over how to treat transgender children and whether being transgender, like a diamond, is forever.